Welcome to Behind the Lens. We are back for, I think this is our 19th show or something like that. Already? Yes. Already? Well, it's your 19th show. I've skipped out a couple of things. But that's because you're a good, dutiful son. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you. For those of you that don't know who this strange person here is, I'm, I'm the strange person, by no, the way. No, I'm the strange I'm Debbie friends. Lynn Elias, uh, MovieSharkDeblore.com, 150 other outlets, printing online around the world, and my cinematic cohort... Greg Srizavazdi yes. is here. Yes. And I have zero outlets, actually. Oh, God. <laughs> no, deepestream.com, but not 150 outlets. That's okay. Yeah. I'm That's working okay. my way up to half. That's, see? <laughs> see? So. See, now, now the trick is getting all 150 to pay. Okay, there you, you go. Know, there, yeah. What they owe. <laughs> and one publisher will know exactly whom I'm talking about. Um, but. This has been, we've got a jam-packed show today. We've got, I'm so excited. Quincy Rose will be joining us live at 11.15. Quincy has an amazing film we're going to talk about, Miles to Go. For those of you that might recognize the name, Quincy Rose, his dad, Mickey Rose, longtime uh, writing partner of Woody Allen. Woody Allen happens to be Quincy's godfather. Mm. And both men had a profound impact on Quincy's cinematic journey so i can't wait for people to get to, to hear us talk with quincy because i truly adore him Great. he is so much fun and housekeeping stuff very important here must give a huge 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 shout out thank you to scott barton everybody at stage lydia and i were at the stage la benefit over the past month everybody got to hear us talk to carol cook and nancy Dussault and so and uh and uh, Jake Simpson, who... <laughs> yes. He, he, Live music, too, right? There's, like, some of his cuts from his own... Yeah. We had... Lot, Jake did not end up, ended up not performing, though. Oh, okay. Because he ended up, at the last minute, his manager booked him in a club. But he played a couple of cuts. On, on our show, he yes. did. Yes. Yeah. We had some of his... Some of his... But an incredible, incredible event. Uh, we'll find out soon enough what kind of money was raised. Mm-hmm. But seeing all of this talent... Patricia Morrison, a TCM favorite. Um, Patricia tur- just turned 100 years old, and she sang. Wow. She sang So In Love With You from Kiss Me, Kate. How was the overall show? And uh, you know, uh, did, you guys, did you and Lydia get up to sing with the ensemble? No. Or no? Okay. No. So. We were sitting there, and Lydia had a big smile on her face. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, it wow. was. And, of course, my friend Debbie Peterson in Alaska um, who I'll be seeing again when she and her husband come down to go back to the Saban Theater. Mm. Um, the bartender remen- remembered us when I walked up. So, <laughs> Just a curious question. Is the Saban a, a great venue for... Saban is an amazing, amazing okay. venue. I love that theater. Yeah, it is stunning. It is beautiful. The architecture, the design, the acoustics are fabulous. Okay. So it's... A real joy. Anybody that ever gets a chance to see anything at the Saban Theater should should go, because the experience itself mm. is so worth it. Mm. 
But, yeah, to, a night like that, to see talent like that all gathered together on the same stage, incredible. I would have gone, but I never leave the house. So I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. And big excitement in Culver City. Arclight up and running in Culver City. I know you have a preference with Culver City. How, how is the actual venue as far as you being a movie going? I have to say yeah. the venue is extremely fabulous. Mm. Uh, I had the good fortune. I was there to do a tiny little press thing before the opening. Um, met with, uh, of course, Gretchen McCourt, who has appeared on the show before, right. Vice President of Programming for Arclight, uh, as well as Michael Blazer, who is the general manager of the Culver City Theater, and Steve Ramskill, who's the senior manager of theater operations uh, for Arclight. He's the one who's in charge of picking. They have full bar craft beers they're going to rotate out every month yeah. they have now why is that such an important thing for you <laughs> i don't drink beer oh okay but, uh, but okay. i just think it's i was just, i guess rhetorical i, I think guess. it's a fabulous concept and the fact that they're going to cater to craft beers and small vendors and things i think is is wonderful I, that's a, in all seriousness that's a great thing and so, yeah. what they are also doing in culver city um that so far appears to be working they have what's called a wireless lobby They've done away with lines. They have, you know, the staff are floating with little tablets, and things are wireless. You're not waiting in line. It's a much more mix-and-mingle experience. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. I like the no-lines issue. Right. I'm not big on lines, as you know. So, but the aesthetic feel of a line, I, I don't know, I might feel a little bit uncomfortable not seeing that long line that I may, might have to actually go and wait at, you know, well, that... Feeling. True. Yeah. And they've ArcLight, I mean, they now have an app. You can mm. get your tickets on an app on your phone. Mm. Um, you can go to their website, buy them in advance. It's, you know, it is truly a wonderful experience. But for me, the biggest excitement is creating that black box theater that ArcLight is known for, going with the purples, the navies, the black interior to really cut down on the light, minimize it, and give you that wonderful you know, immersive viewing experience. And especially with a lot of the blockbusters and some of the small little gems, you really want to be immersed. And the theaters, are, now that they're totally refurbished and redone, are absolutely yeah. fabulous. And they still have one theater that will do, uh, they can show 35 millimeter on, which for their archive series they do. Yeah, that's awesome. Is perfect. We Stop grinning like that. I think it's great. I think 35 millimeter is great. And, you know, like you said, Culver City, the heart of Screenland, great movie history, you know, Gone with the Wind, Rain Tree County. And Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Stoney's right there. And David O. Selznick's mansion is right next to the theater. I had no idea. Rita Hayworth is buried at the Holy Cross Cemetery on Jefferson. Mm -hmm. So great stuff in Culver City. And I think Arclight's just going to be a crown jewel there. So. I, I really think so. And the fact that, you know, everything is a 5.1 Dolby, the, the CP650 processors for sound. Two screens are 3D, real yeah, D3D, wow. yeah. and they have the silver screen. And everything else, uh, they use the Sony, uh, the Sony SRX320 and plays up to 4X or 4K. And the Culver so, Hotel is right there. The Culver Hotel is right there. And, you yeah. know, because all of the seats are reserved right. in the Arclight, 
you can be at the Culver Hotel eating. You can be down at Rush Street eating. You can be across the yeah. street. You can be at Rocco's watching a game, having a beer, having a pizza. <laughs> yeah. And you can run in five minutes before the movie and your seat's there and you don't have to oh, wait. That's great. Yeah, that's great. And, of course, yeah. one of the big highlights, only three trailers per movie. Mm. That's it. Three yeah. trailers. As opposed to, what, ten, it seems. And yeah. it's a no-advertising theater. So there's no advertising in the lobby. There's no ads on the screens. Mm. So, so far, I'm extremely impressed. Extremely impressed. So, we'll see how, if that, imp- <laughs> how it goes. Well, you're going to be happy if they, they start um, showing screenings there for your viewing purposes. Screenings and premieres. Yeah. It is a publicist. It is a perfect place because you've got a whole courtyard there. It's a gorgeous place yeah. to do screenings uh, and premieres. You can do red carpet. You've got a, a roundabout for limos. And if you need makeup, hair and makeup, you can get a room at the Culver Hotel. So My sister was married there. Oh. So, yeah. Fun memories. And I used to live a couple blocks that's, away, too. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But it's always so. exciting when, when the, new theaters pop up mm. or when they take old ones and they refurbish them and... It is for the better, and they still retain the ability to show archival films and show on 35 millimeter. Yeah. yeah. So in a really nice setting. So I'm looking forward to this. They also opened on the same day. They also opened a new theater in Chicago. They're opening another one in Santa Monica in Santa Monica Place in November in time for Hunger Games, okay. uh, the final Hunger Games and yeah. Star Wars. So, by the end of the year, I think they're going to have 10 theaters in the United States with this wireless lobby, the highbrow. So, we'll see. We'll see. But uh, so far, thumbs up from me on what they've done with this particular theater. Is there anything that surprised you, like, out of the ordinary when you actually scan the place? I love, they have this huge interactive, like, jumbotron of all these individual little screens. That where they actually go behind the lens with little featurettes oh, about cool. the films that will be playing up on there. Nice. So yeah. I really like that yeah. idea. So I'd be happy just to stand there and just get mesmerized by that for a while. Yeah. So big things. Hopefully, you know, everybody will at least give it a shot. Mm. Um, but for my money, I think it's, it's well worth it. Well worth it. And now, we've both been very, very, very busy with interviews of late. Yeah, it's weird because you do certain interviews and I've been doing certain interviews and we haven't really cross-connected, I guess, the last couple of weeks. But right? actually, it's better because we're just ex- <laughs> we're exposing that many more filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, you know, one filmmaker, kind of a filmmaker I wanted to expose was, Dol- was Dolph Lundgren. And, you know, when you think of Dolph Lundgren, you think of Expendables, you think of Rocky Four. His new film called Skin Trade, where he gets into a fight with Tony Jaa. Which is an amazing film. And yes. the issue of sex trafficking and right. kidnapping associated with sex trafficking, it, it, it is a very, it's a global problem. Yeah. And very few films, there have been very few that actually address that. It's, it's weird because you think of it, it's an action drama, but with real serious issues as yeah. well. So. And I, I think it's a fabulously done film. And yeah, Dolph's one of the co-writers. Dolph's one of the co-writers. And producer. And producer. He didn't direct this one, but during uh, my interview, interview with Dolph, I asked him what aspect of filmmaking does he like the most. And since he has kind of an engineering background, his answer was pretty, pretty on point. So here's what he had to say. 
I like editing quite a bit, and I kind of like I like、um, writing too, especially rewriting things. I hate to write with a blank page; it sucks. You know, you got to start from scratch. But I mean, if there's something that I've worked on and put away for a while, or I got to I can rewrite something and I can shape it, that's kind of fun. And, and editing is fun too, because you're actually moving. It's a bit in, like engineering; you're moving part things around to try to get some kind of final result that you like. And there's a lot of different options. When you're filming, it's it's hard work. You're basically trying to to get things done on time. You know, it's, it's more、uh, pressure. Than... <laughs> you know, what's <laughs> Yeah. It's a visual thing that you guys when, get when, on YouTube, yeah. Yeah, when you see the video, you'll find out I'm like destroying everything. Destroying all、here. the visual design. <laughs> But all Lydia's hard work. Yeah, all of Lydia's hard work. But for, in your perspective,、um, what is your favorite aspect as far? Do you, do you like the editing process? I mean, he was talking about the he doesn't like the blank page. I remember Woody Allen. You mentioned Woody Allen before.、Uh, he actually loves the black the. Blank page, creating something out of nothing,、mm-hmm. and then he said, as the steps go further on, it gets less and less his vision, and he becomes more disappointed. <laughs> um, so, um, but I'm wondering what your favorite aspect is as far as do you like the editing process? Do you like the blank page? Do you fear the blank page? I don't fear the blank page.、Oh, okay.、Um, I like the idea of creating things from the ground up.、Mm. But I also like then once it's on the page, then I like to be able to manipulate it and edit it. Right.、Um, so it's like I'm. I like and then putting it on film. I love the whole idea of cinematography as storytelling. Yeah. So I'm very bizarre. That's why producing is perfect for me when I produce things because my hands can be in everything. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what Mr. Rose's favorite element is, as far as I don't know,、knows. but I think we're going to find out here because joining me is my friend Quincy Rose. Hi, Quincy. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Can you hear us? I can. You know what? I don't know if it's the phone I'm on or something. It is a landline. I was told it's super crystal clear, but、uh, I don't know why my volume is a little quiet on my side, and I'm afraid to touch this. Advanced phone system because I don't know what the heck will happen. So, well, if you touch it and you get disconnected, you can call back. It's okay. All right. Well, I'm touching it now. That、touching、sounds really、it. bad.、Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm touching the phone now. Except I don't see where it. I don't know. It's fine. I can hear you. I'm、okay. asking the right question, aren't I? Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Then let's just. I think I can hear you. How's everything going? It is going fine. How's everything with you? Great, thank you. And and who is your your co-host today? I I, I missed his、oh, name. Oh, my co-host is Greg Srizavazdi. Greg. Greg. Nice to meet you. Greg is.、Uh, he loves films. He is. He's like me. He likes the technical aspects of films. He. You know, he's he's not a a fluff and stuff kind of person when it comes to films. Yeah, I listened to the opening of your show online, and then of course I I disconnected before I called you guys to not have any kind of crossfeed or whatever that does. But、uh, hi, Greg, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So, Quincy, you've got. I mean, this is as I was and I was raving to Greg even before we went on the air that it is a real treat for me because first to see Miles to go, then to see your second film that is. You know, friends, F and friends, F and friends. It's going out on the fest circuit now. Yeah. As a storyteller, your diversity and your growth as a filmmaker, just between those two, it it just elates me to no end. I it, I just get so excited when I see directors that have that range, 
and it's palpable in the emotional level and the visual level. And I just, I just think you are a filmmaker to watch, my friend. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you know, when you're making these films, you're you're not quite sure if you're taking two steps forward or two steps back, and oftentimes you're doing a little of both as you're doing it, and then you just hope for the best in the end. But I I have been able to kind of have that objective view uh, as far as, okay, I definitely grew in certain ways from the last film to this film. And that's, I mean, I like that's really ultimately the goal, you know, mm -hmm. to keep growing. Well, to fill everybody in on what Miles to Go is about, why don't you give us a brief synopsis? Oh, this is every writer's favorite part. <laughs> I know, and I love, um, I love making you do this. <laughs> uh, well, Miles to Go is about a writer from Los Angeles who... Um, is kind of stuck in a rut, and he's uh, overdosing on his own kind of ego, and and um, he's a bit of like a, a man child who refuses to grow, and he's he's having problems in his life, and uh, he has an on again ex, uh, off again ex girlfriend, whom he believes might just be the solution to him getting back on track in his uh, life and getting out of his rut. Of course, he's not necessarily coming at it from the um, most purest sense of what a relationship should be based on. He's kind of doing it selfishly, and uh, as such, he's also going against a kind of uh, deep personal belief that relationships just can't last. And so it's really just a guy battling his own ego, which is a lot of uh, things that I like to write about. Just curious Quince, uh, question, Quincy. Growing up, was your first instinct artistically... Uh, to follow the writing path, or were you always just pretty much coming out from the womb, kind of a director, which was more well, of your aesthetic? you know, it's an interesting question, because for, for me, I've always written, like, I remember being a kid and writing down, like, poetry or little lines and showing things to my parents and being very encouraged. Um, I never openly really discussed being wanting to be a director when I was younger, but when I used to watch movies, I would very much kind of find myself looking at like well how is this okay so you're you're we're seeing these two people now and now we're seeing those two people but now we're seeing the back of that and i would kind of like break down a film in my head i didn't know i was doing this but as i look back on my childhood and think about how i used to view movies i think it was a little bit of that trying to figure it out and just a whole lot of awe of um like you guys just a true film lover and um so I think maybe uh, there's some sort of director that was there, and then, but the writing was what came first and foremost. So hopefully now, that answers some yeah. sort of the question. Now, you and I talked about this before, yeah. and I always find it very, very interesting when we're, we're coming at this as a second generation yeah. with parents and relatives to you know, live up to or follow in their footpath or something. Your dad, Mickey Rose, I mean, prolific, wonderful writer, yeah. wonderful comedian. And, of course, Woody Allen, um, your godfather, your dad's writing partner. How influential were these gentlemen on helping shape your approach to filmmaking? Well, I think, and I have a tendency to, like, go off topic. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> if I start floating away, bring me back. Um, I think, like... Personally, I think watching my dad work as a writer, see, because when I was born in 74, 
Woody and my father had already kind of stopped uh, writing together because my father moved out to Los Angeles to work for television um, to have more steady jobs than, you know, a, a film a year or whatever. And um, so he, uh, well, he was also writing for television in, in New York. But my point is I wasn't alive when he was doing the majority of his stuff with Woody. Mm -hmm. So the work I actually saw my father do was um, there was never a day when we didn't hear a typewriter going. My sister and I still, like, I mean, you hear a typewriter, click, clack, click, click, and it's like, it's cathartic. It's like home. You know, it's, uh, that's the, you know, that was the uh, kind of um, the rhythm of our, of our childhood. And so the main thing my father, like, kind of instilled in me without even telling me anything was that a writer writes. So you have to be writing to write. Um, and Woody, he also has that same kind of nose to the grindstone. He's not a big show off in ways that other filmmakers might be or such. He gets his film made for the budget they'll allow and he, you know, he, he so he's really, it's that, that right up, you know, you gotta like nose to the grindstone and be a worker first. Mm -hmm. um, so that really influenced me personally. And then I would get little bits of information from Woody over the years um, mostly through my father and a little bit as I got older and he knew I wanted to make films and he, you know, he watches my films. We're not as close as we were when we were younger growing up and such. And since my father passed away and stuff, you know, there's always in generational gaps, there's yep. more distance created from that. And, uh, but he still watches the projects and he gives me good sound advice. Um, but with my father, it was more watching the actual craft of writing I remember some of my earliest memories going to, you know, the Carson show in uh, NBC Burbank and just being taken down the writers' rooms and, and just seeing what was going on. So that's the biggest influence. But then stylistically, my father's humor is quite out there. If you've seen Banana, yes. Take the Money and Run, <laughs> or his own uh, project, which he wrote and directed, called Student Bodies, which was actually the first comedy horror like slasher film, mm -hmm. not like a Laurel and Hardy scary night film, but like a real, it, it was kind of what set off the path to a film like Scream existing. Mm -hmm. And it is out there. It's a cult classic now. It plays every year at Halloween. There's a big fanship for it. And, uh, but it, it's, it's out there. I mean, there's jokes I thought I understood as a kid that I did not clearly. And as I got older, so I get that absurd humor from my dad. I get that like um, Woody's films have always influenced me, of course, as many filmmakers as he has influenced, uh, you know, Noah Baumbach or Mike Mills or whoever it would be that really just, uh, you know, Nicole Hollis Center or somebody who, you know, you almost can't avoid that influence if you're an American filmmaker who writes dialogue-driven character kind of oriented films. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a long roundabout answer, but they've both very much influenced me. Woody more by his films and my dad more by his person being in front of me. Um, and and then both of them just kind of from being around me, you know. Quincy, as far as your own filmmaking, how important was it for you to actually learn and master the craft of editing because that's an aspect of filmmaking I think is very underrated and how yeah. how did that process influence your writing and your own aesthetic as a filmmaker today well you know what I, it's a good question and editing is so interesting it's um, not not all parts of editing are that interesting I mean, a lot of it's boring <laughs> transferring things etc but basically um, I'm interested in filmmaking so when I first did a PA job when I was 18 
I was, you know, what, what's going on? What does a PA do? You know, and, and it's not just getting sandwiches. A lot of that is, you know, but it's also, you know, managing the actors a little and, you know, such and such. So it's, I just really wanted to know about all aspects of filmmaking. Um, the editing kind of came by surprise. I, uh, as I discussed in the film Miles to Go, I too am sober personally. And when you get sober, usually it means you have to. And I had to. And my point being is I was kind of starting from scratch again in my late 20s. And um, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I didn't know how to get there. And I was writing, just writing, writing, writing. And a friend of mine at the time said, well, why don't you come manage the office? He, was a post, he had a post-production place. A very uh, an independent place that was thriving, and he said, "And I'll teach you how to edit." And I thought, "Cool, now I can learn how to edit." I didn't think I was going to be any kind of editor. In fact, it's so um, kind of daunting when you watch somebody do it for your first time, and you're worried you're going to screw it up. That I didn't want to. I was like very hands off and kind of just learning slowly. And um, you know, and then I did a film that was like a short film, and. I didn't have real money to get it edited, so I you know, did a lot of the editing, and then I did another and figured, why am I paying any editor? I know kind of how to do it. Um, and then just kind of learned from that route. But since then, and I have by no means mastered editing um, or any aspect of filmmaking, but um, I've learned quite a bit on the editing, and I've edited both of my features that I've made and many of my projects now, and it's, I can't say how important it is as, an, as a filmmaker to at least understand editing, because while making things, you uh, you don't do it so much in the writing, but in the shooting, you know exactly what you need while you're on set, and you know where you can cut, not cut corners, but you know in your head, I don't need that, I don't need that, I'm not going to use that, um, or you'll know if you can save it, if you've run out of time and they're like, we can't shoot anymore, you think, okay, I can fix this. Um, so yeah, it's been really, really helpful. Well, as you and I have talked about before, I am in love with your cinematography on both of your films. You've got Amza Moglin, who did the cinematography on Miles to Go, yeah. and then the incredible Howard Wexler. Again, yeah. another next generation yeah. uh, who does Friends, F and Friends, F and Friends. Yeah. How important as a director, when you're sitting down with your cinematographers, to design your visual palette, to find that tonal bandwidth, that cohesiveness between your, the emotion and the visuals? Oh, absolutely uh, important. That's one of the most important things as a director prepping to get into a film. I mean, without my, I mean, most directors, I'm not going to say most because that's covering, but, you know, we're not trained as cinematographers. Now, certain directors picked up cameras, Cassavetes, and different people who just learned the camera, Steven Soderbergh, and mm -hmm. these newer, a lot of the newer people who are really do-it-yourself, we're all grabbing cameras and learning. Um, but with, uh, without my cinematographers, I don't have a look. And um, so it's so important for them to understand the emotional uh, content of each scene. Mm -hmm. um, that's something I actually learned through my cinematographer, Amza Moglen, who's just a wonderful person and such a great cinematographer. He's a uh, Romanian, actually born in Transylvania, I believe, and um, studied in Chicago after first studying to be a doctor. He even got far enough as a... Uh, 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 by by doing like a bisection on a corpse or you know, wow. uh, and I thought, geez, uh, you know. But then he learned film, and he's such a, he's a good director too. But he's his cinematography is so beautiful, and he's he's a true artist in his soul. 
so it's a pleasure to work with him, and I've learned so much from him. And, yes, we have everything we discuss and plan as much as we can ahead of time, and then you do have to find things on set, of course. Um, and I do work that way where we have a list of all the things we want, but then we find our way once we're on set. I don't like to be – there's no storyboard or anything like that, maybe the occasional kind of uh, – little drawing of like, well, if he was here and the camera was here kind of mm-hmm. thing. And then with Howard, it uh, was the same thing. I uh, got together with him. And, uh, you know, first you have to make sure you have a rapport with your cinematographer. Um, I'm sure there's cases where people can't stand their cinematographer. In fact, we know about these. There's yes, famous, we heard. <laughs> stories, and I won't say names, but where the cinematographer, in fact, thinks the director's an idiot and wants to take over. And, and that's, that's a whole other battle. Like, there's a whole give and take as a director and as a cinematographer. And, you know, there's times when you have to give your cinematographer a little leeway, and there's times you have to make sure you're always captaining the ship. And that can go away sometimes, and especially depending on how many hats you have, and it, it gets trickier. Um, but, yeah, you absolutely have to have that kind of uh, not, like, like, verbatim mapped out, like this is going to happen and this is going to happen, but, like, what your goal is with each scene. What's the emotional goal? What's the visual goal? And then, you know, a lot of it comes down to just doing it and finding it. So now how beneficial is it to you as a director, especially with these low-budget, no-budget films, as I like to call them? Yeah, seriously. The Mm -hmm. the fact that you're doing your own editing, are you able to make adjustments quickly when you're filming then if you realize, okay, I'm covered, I don't need to do a coverage shot here, I don't need to, to pick that up? Are you doing some sort of, you know, visual editing, at least in your mind? Yeah, I'm, I'm like, if anything, to a fault because I'm the one who's like, no, 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 we don't need any B-roll. It's fine. I'm never, I'm never using an insert of that bookshelf. Let's go. Let's go. And cinematographer, are you sure? Maybe I can just pop off a couple. No, no, no. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> and then I'm in the editing room, and I'm thinking, I really could have used a shot of that bookshelf. They were right. So I've learned a little bit to let people, like, if you have time, let me just pop off a couple shots real quickly. It's, you know, with the digital stuff especially, it's easy. It's mm-hmm. not um, – we don't need to set up a film card and, you know, do all the extra work that comes with that. So for a cinematographer to just turn on his camera and take a couple extra shots is a great save. That said, I'm not a big coverage person, and both of my films show that. I, I hope the majority of my films will show mm-hmm. that. I like to get what I pretty much see the film being and a little extra so we can save ourselves. And occasionally I have to save myself in post with fancy jump cuts or some sort of, Sometimes you figure out your editing style based on what you don't have. And then it becomes part of the next phase of writing your story. You know, it really is essentially the uh, final rewrite. The final draft of your film is the editing room. You mm-hmm. know? Well, and, you know, and you mentioned, you know, you're not big on coverage. And I can see this in your films. Your films are clean. They are very clean. You don't have, you know, all of this unnecessary or extraneous filler shots tossed in there yeah i'm just not a fan of that personally i, I quite often i think why did they show a ha- why, did, why did we see a picture of the house just now well, well i know where they're they're inside a house i get it <laughs> um but other times it's like oh we're at somebody else's house we need to show that we're at somebody else's house or what time of day it is and by the way i'm so envious when i watch certain filmmakers who really know how to do that beautifully and it makes such a great transition and stuff i think it's just we all think differently, and we all view films differently, and, and there's different reasons why we want to make films. Like, um, I can't do certain films, or maybe I could if I got to that 
that point in my life or my, my career. But there's certain films I watch, and I just, I, not only do I not really have an interest in making them because I don't think I could, but they're just, they're done beautifully, and it's just not something I would have thought of. And, uh, yeah, mine are real kind of like, oh, I don't want to watch stuff I don't need to watch. You know, we know the story. As long as it can follow it. I get told in the editing room usually, well, wait a minute, I think we need to add three seconds, even if it's three seconds of, like, just a shot of the streets, please, because I'm getting confused between this scene and that scene. And I'll say, really? You're getting confused? But if, like, three or four co-producers or certain editors or something tell me that, then I think to myself, all right, we better add something. But I I try not to. I, I try to leave as much superfluous materials superfluous. You know, it's just gone. You know my favorite director, Brian De Palma. I'm paraphrasing. Oh yeah, he's great. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing him, but he he was saying how he just hated shooting coverage because to him it was essentially lazy filmmaking because you're not actually visualizing the scene. And he was saying basically you might as well shoot a TV show. You're not really directing. I, is that in many ways why you're not shooting coverage because you're actually you have a lot of the, the pictures and the shots and the beats already in your head. Well, yeah, I'm not going to quote him, and I won't, I'm not going to cop trail onto his quote because he's a very established, uh, you know, brilliant, you know, he's made some of the best films we've ever seen. Right. So he can go out and say whatever he wants, you know, any bold statement. So I won't say that people getting a lot of coverage are not filmmakers. Uh, I would say oftentimes they're smarter than me because, <laughs> like I said, I ended up in the editing room and you're like, I know I said we were going to do this shot in one take, but it's just not working. Um, what do we have to cut to? And they're like, nothing. You didn't get any coverage. And I'm like, that's right. That's right. So what do we do? Do we eliminate the scene entirely? Can we jump it? Can we cut half of it? And, you know, for me, part of the fun is making mistakes and figuring out the solution. And I really feel that's what a director does. A director is basically a manager of mistakes. It's because uh, nothing's going to come off perfectly. You got this person asking you questions about how they're saying the line, this person who needs to know if the light is hitting the right place. Everybody wants to know where to stand and the word's not working. So you got to fix that. And you know, it's, it's really, and then you get into the editing room and it's like, well, I thought we should, it looked pretty good on set. Are, is this the, are you sure this is the take I said was the best take? And it doesn't feel like the best take later on. And you know, so it's all tricky, uh, I think even having coverage is tricky, too. And, mm. by the way, as you know, coverage takes time. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I get the coverage. I need, like, okay, this is a, we need a close-up here. So what I'll do is if we're doing a wide shot, I'll get my wide shot, and then I'll have the close-up. But if I know I'm doing close-up, I'm not getting the wide shot. There's just, that's just mm. going to waste my time. Um, or if I know I only want to see the girlfriend talking in this scene because that's the specific emotional, you know, uh, projection of the film at that point, I don't need to turn around on me or whoever is the other actor. Now, granted, certain actors you're going to work with are going to almost demand that you turn around on them. So <laughs> sometimes you got to shoot a couple of lines. So, oh, perfect. You did perfect. And then turn it around. And in your head, you're thinking, I'm never using that. But, you know, uh, had to shoot it. So they felt like they were getting even kind of uh, coverage. And, uh, do whatever you want in the editing room, you know. Well, and now, what is also very interesting, for your first time out directing with Miles to go, you're also directing yourself. You're starring in that film. Yeah. Now, Friends F and Friends F and Friends, that you didn't. You, you have a voice phone call part in there, oh. but yeah. you're not directing yourself. How, what are your, how do you decide when the director hat comes off, when the actor hat comes on, and then 
doing your casting, knowing that these people need to get along with you when you're behind the camera and when you're in front of it? Um, well, I don't have a ton, a ton of experience with that. I have, like, I, I was in my, like, in the web series that a friend of mine co- uh, that he created and uh, wrote, and uh, and so I got some practice doing that, and it kind of just informed me in a couple short films I had done that, like, it, it's, I don't know, I think certain people think a certain way, and, and other people are better at, you know, other things, and, and I think there's a certain type of mind that feels that they can do it's not like a smarter mind or a better mind or anything. It's just it just comes with feeling like you're capable of doing these few different things. And I, I mean, I've actually been on sets where it's clearly not working, and you're like, uh, "This is uncomfortable." You know, who's mm-hmm. going to tell the director, writer, producer, star that they're a being a jerk or b it's just not working? Um, so I think you know, in my situation, speaking from personal experience, like with Miles to Go. It really comes down to the team that you have surrounding you and trusting your team. And, like, again, you know, Oms is on the camera, so his main focus is making sure everything looks perfect. He's not, he's not watching my acting. He doesn't, you know, that's not his business. He's making sure it looks visually stunning and that he's connecting with the actor emotionally via the camera. Uh, so then you have a first AD, and they're hopefully on your team enough because, you know, quite often first ADs will just run a set entirely. Sure. And... Um, if you have a good enough relationship with them on these do-it-yourself kind of level films, usually it's probably going to be a friend or somebody you've worked with before who really knows what they're doing, who you trust, and then you can say, give me personal notes. Like, don't do it in front of everybody so everybody's, you know, you're, we need to know who's in charge and this and that, but tell me what's going on with me. Um, as far as what hat you're wearing, I, I think for me it just comes down to what am I doing at that moment. Um, so if you're... You know, directing, a lot of it's done ahead of time. You know, it's it's casting as the old, I, I can't remember what the percentage is in the quote that goes around, you know, 95% of directing is casting. Um, so once you have your cast down, uh, then it comes down to, you know, setting, talking to your cinematographer, making sure you know what you want to do on set. While you're on set, you make your adjustments. But, yeah, you want to be able to give your actors equal, like if they want to run lines with you. See, that's where it's tricky, Debbie, is where... Um, <laughs> You can't always run lines with somebody, but if you're just if you're acting in a film that you're not directing, you can be off to the side running lines with them. But when you're directing it and you're setting up the shot with your DP and you're making, there's no running lines with people. You know, it's let's just go. So I don't know. It's it's just kind of a balancing act that you do internally, and you while you're in the scene, you're just acting. You can't be directing while you're in the scene. Uh, you do have to have a little bird on your shoulder, kind of overviewing everything and and feeling the 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 energy of the scene so you know if the other person is not bringing what you think they you want them to bring as a director and vice versa that you're not bringing what you feel like you could bring um and the other good thing is to be extremely harsh on yourself so you know uh which i am so it's uh, i I don't think i let myself get away with too much and i'm i'm pretty you know certain where i really screwed things up (laughs) (laughs) that's half the battle when you know what you screwed up and you admit it yeah, I, you know what? There's no time to not admit screwing up on films. Like these films, we get like one or two takes sometimes. If we're lucky, because of the way I shoot, with no like real, real extreme coverage, mm-hmm. sometimes if I'm just doing one, if I decided ahead of time, this is a wide shot, it's not moving, we're watching the whole scene play out, I can do it 10, 15 times if I want to because we can do that in, you know, 30 minutes. But sure. like if it's, you know, if it's set up, move, set up, move, set up, move, 
you know, you're going to get one or two takes. And sometimes I'll say to the person, we got to move on. And they'll be like, can I just do one more, please? And I'll be like, okay, one more. There we go. And we're moving. You know, and um, it's not always that satisfying as an actor. I know um, you feel like, oh, I didn't get it. But it also puts you up to a uh, test of, like, giving your best at the moment you have to give it. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's exciting. I, it's, <laughs> I, I think people grow out of wanting to do that, and you see different directors move on to bigger and bigger things, um, even if they plateau at a certain level of, you know, finance mm-hmm. or whatnot. But there is a rush that occurs on a set, like, you know, where it's very little money. You're shooting in 10, 12 days, so you're getting, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 pages of dialogue done a day. Uh, you know, it's it's intense, and it's but it's part of the fun. Now, you've got Miles to Go, which has a distribution deal. Yes, it's going to be popping into theaters. It's already on VOD. Yes, and now Friends F and Friends is just starting out on the fest circuit. Are yes. you finding a difference in this process between the two films in terms of getting the word out there? Um, wait, what was that question? Am I finding a difference? Are you finding a difference between, you know, miles to go, you've gone on that journey, getting a distribution deal, you, you know, it's in place, it's opening. Friends yeah. F and Friends, is just, you're just starting out on the fest circuit. Yeah. Are you finding differences in, how, in the approach that you've taken with each of the films well, to gain that audience? No, I mean, honestly, with miles to go, it was, there's so much learning going on, and there still is. And always, I don't mean just, like, learning as a filmmaker. I mean learning the, the like, getting it out there part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe there will always be growth there, too. Um, it's not my favorite part of the process. Uh, I love doing stuff like this, uh, you know, chatting with people like, like anybody like you. is just wonderful, you know, and talking about the film. But the figuring out, I'm bad at two things that I don't like. I don't like asking people for money, and I don't like figuring out where it's being sold because I get anxious about that stuff. But, um I think, like, Miles to Go was its own thing. And, you know, my father produced it, and then he got uh, sick. So I, the film was finished, and then he passed away. And that put me, like, to have to deal. Our, our mom had already passed away 10 years before him, so we had to figure out what to do with his stuff. Uh, you know, so that took time away from me even thinking about Miles to Go. Mm. Um, in the meantime, it, it had already gotten into a couple different festivals over the following year, so... I would attend it here and there, and people would talk to me about distribution, but I didn't quite feel strongly about the people I was talking to, so mm-hmm. I just kind of um, let it go for a little bit. And then my uh, second film came about, and I was able to shoot it, and I still didn't know what I was doing with Miles to Go. And then um, and I had a moving process, and I was moved to New York, and then my great-uncle passed away. So it was all these things delaying me from dealing with Miles to Go. And then I just kind of got like... At a like a lucky timing, weird timing, um, with Miles to Go's delay, the blessing came out that it's getting distribution. Like you said, it's on iTunes and Xbox and Vudu and that stuff now, and then it's you know coming out this Friday, uh, which you know I'm pretty sure everybody's going to go see it instead of Mad Max. Um, it is but, the counter programming, Quincy. <laughs> exactly. Come on, come and, on. Uh, and um, but uh, you know, the, it, it, the timing just happened that my other film was done. So it's actually a nice timing to have conversations like this, because oftentimes, especially as a do-it-yourself filmmaker, you don't have a second film done when you're talking about the film you mm-hmm. you know getting out there. It, it takes all your energy to get the film out there. So I can't tell you I have a different process yet. I know that. 
like friends effing friends effing friends is a more quote unquote commercial effort. It's hilarious. Yeah, you know, thank you. And you know, <laughs> but it's done in a more like lighthearted kind of way than Miles to Go is a very. I think it has very serious tones in it mm-hmm. with very comedic elements, but it's. In my head, it's more of a dramedy than a just straight comedy, whereas for me, I think that the comedy is outweighing the drama, even though you have to have the drama sure. to make the comedy in Friends Up and Friends. So they're two entirely different beasts, I think, and I'm yet to find out what the exact differences will be. Uh, as of now, like you said, we're still waiting to get into certain festivals and hear word back on certain things. I know we'll get in. That part of the process has been exactly the same as it has been on Miles to Go or every short film I've ever made that I've sent out to festivals, and you just kind of sit around hoping that they pick them, and it's a very, you know, almost uh, disheartening uh, experience and process. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you got to find who you know who's affiliated with different festivals and maybe give a friend a call and say, hey, I know you're not going to just pick it because of you know me, but will you at least look at it better? Yeah, we'll look at it better. You know, there's like... You start learning certain things. It, it, it always comes back to who you know and how you can get it in front of people. Um, and does the project stand on its own once you get it in front of them? But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's helpful to get it out, you know, to people who know people. Well, all I know is I am so excited for you. I am thrilled that Miles to Go is available now in theaters. Yeah. I can't wait to see where Friends F and Friends F and Friends goes. Yes. I predict a quick dis- once it once you get it out on, on the fest circuit, I predict a quick distribution offer will come your way for that one. That's the goal. And the opposite of Miles to Go will be screen it, get some attention, get rid of it, you know, mm-hmm. get it out there, let people see it. Quincy, this has been an absolute thrill and a joy. Oh. You know I love you dearly. Yeah, this you is... too. This has been my pleasure, Debbie. Thank you so much. And Greg, thank you so much. Thank it was you. so like, uh, nice to talk to you. It was great talking to you. And we will talk again. And as you're going out into more festivals and all, please, you can call in, you know, and, and we can promote where they are and get people out. Oh, thank you so much, Debbie. I really appreciate it. And you guys have a great rest of the day. You too, Take Quincy. Time. Thank Thanks. you. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. And that was the wonderful Quincy Rose. We're going to take a short break and come right back and cram in a whole lot of interview excerpts for you. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we are back. If you missed our last segment, wonderful writer-director Quincy Rose. Um, This show will automatically, will replay right after this, and then the audio will be archived and available later this afternoon and in perpetuity 24-7. Great. Great interview with Quincy. That was one of my favorite interviews. I, I know it's hard. You shouldn't pick favorites, but that, that has yeah, to I, be right up there. I definitely agree with you. Uh, I'd said he was he was a passionate, enthusiastic filmmaker, mm-hmm. and he knows his craft, and he is willing to admit he a learning curve, making mistakes, and that's right. how you learn and you grow. Yeah. And I really hope people, you know, he is a name to watch in the future. I'm very excited for what Quincy is going to be doing as a filmmaker. And speaking of filmmakers, we have we're going to we're going to mess with Brian, sound engineer Brian here. We're taking things out of order. Um, he loves that, by the way. I know. So. 
Greg and I had a chance to talk to one of everybody's favorite friends, Courtney Cox, who makes her feature directorial debut. She's already directed television, Cougar Town, I think 12 or 13 episodes she's directed. But with Just Before I Go, Courtney jumps into the feature directing chair. So I had a chance to ask her exactly that, and then also it becoming a family affair. It feels good. I loved it. I can't wait to do it again. I'm really excited. I got to find something good. But I just worked with the most amazing actors on a script that touched me and made me laugh. And I got to be in charge of every little bit. Nothing makes me happier. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, now, putting your mom hat on, mm-hmm. that was Coco saying, love me tender. Love me tender, yeah. How exciting is that for you as a mom? It's great. I actually have a little video of Coco doing it. She was in the closet of, and in our guest house, and Johnny recorded her, and he played the piano. And she had her earphones on. She said, Mom, we're rolling. She kept getting mad at me because I was filming her. And she's got a beautiful little haunting voice. And she does. I mean, the way Coco sings Love Me Tender, it's it's beautiful. It opened the film, right? It opened yeah. the film, right. And then again at the tail mm-hmm. for, over the end titles. And, of course, one of the stars of the film, Kate Walsh, Sean William Scott. So Kate, who's no stranger to television or film, had this to say about Courtney as a feature director. And she's just a natural man. She's like a really great director. She's very specific in terms of what she wants. She has a real vision, but then she's got that great quality of being able to have everyone collaborate and keep it alive and fresh, and it was always a good vibe on set. And when you have this kind of budget and, uh, you know, limited shoot days and doing lots of different, you have to really be organized and know what you're doing in order to keep the momentum going, in order to keep the the vibe's good so as an actors and, and, and a crew you feel like you're actually accomplishing stuff so it's uh it's no small order and she did it so. you know one of the things about just before i go it is filled as courtney herself has described it filled with inappropriate humor which does make it very funny and very truthful with her casting you would think kate walsh would be have the heavier dramatic parts she doesn't she's the one with the comedic parts Sean William Scott, that you expect to be laugh out loud funny. Yeah, the scene stealer. He is this poignant, yeah. dramatic turn. It's and a very subdued performance. It, yeah. tr- it truly is. But yeah. one part of the performance that was not too subdued for anybody, mm. as a first-time director, and we'll hear from another first-time director as well, working with water, especially underwater, you always have to wonder and question – so, I asked Courtney, it's daunting enough, challenging enough with your first feature, but then you throw in underwater sequences. So, what do you worry about? How does that go for you when you're a first-timer? And this is what she had to say. Thank you so much, because that was really, really hard. I had laryngitis, remember? Oh, right. Oh, my gosh. Talk. That's right, yeah. And Sean, it's not a huge fan of staying underwater for ever. Yeah. Really, like, having weights, like, weight you weights down and, and down. And you know, down. It, I mean, that's basically what we did. We didn't really cheat anything. And when you see the movie... No. I'm sinking. I had to stretch a lot out of a little bit of stuff underwater. And there was going to be a lot more underwater. I was going to have the whole thing and, you know, 
people kind of mouthing the words, and some people were really good at it. Some people not so much. Were not as good. <laughs> I remember the first. The, my first. But Sean says to me, Courtney. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I have to say, he said to me, Courtney. Um, I don't think we're gonna be able to get this all in one day. And I was like. Oh, yeah, we are. Yeah. We don't have any money, and this is it. You get your ass in that tank, and let's shoot this shit. <laughs> but I think, see, it must have been right after that, I did, like, a practice one where we went down just a little bit, and, and, I, and I came out, I was, sh- I think I almost started crying. I was shaking, I was like, I don't think I can do this. No, no, it's all, it was I was, I was freaked yeah. out. Like, but then we ended up doing it, I felt really, I felt like it was a big accomplishment, then I went home, and I think I was dying, because we were underwater all day. But you know, the whole, oh, you had hypothermia. Yeah. He didn't really have it. Um, but uh, the whole scene on the boat with him and his uh, his father, Clancy, and, and Sean, and then the little boy, that wasn't supposed to be on the boat. That was all supposed to be underwater. So I had to literally go, okay, I can't get this. I can't, I can't communicate. He's not going to stay on long enough. This Clancy looks ridiculous with his hair like that. Oh, my God, this is not working out. What the fuck did I do? I'm thinking to myself, this is the worst moment. And I was like, okay. You can do it on the outside of the boat. We're going to do it. I'm going to have him look up. I'm going to use that. I just had to literally think on my feet. And then it worked out. That was one of those workout moments, but it could have been a disaster. No one looks good underwater. Guess what? Nobody. <laughs> Your hair literally goes like this. So Clancy, Clancy looked like the Joker. I was like, I can't take this seriously. <laughs> Sean's in pain. <laughs> it's just brutal. But it worked out. And this is what happens when you get the three, those three friends together. Yeah. That's a very important moment in the film, by the way. So that water description, it's very important vis-a-vis the, the actual film yes. as well. Yes, so. extremely so. And the yeah. fact that it, it did end up being serendipitous yeah. really played to Courtney's favor. Yeah. But going from an, a nice comedic experience, we have The Drownsman now out on, on uh, DVD, and Blu-ray. Blu-ray. Um, horror film, Chad Archibald, first time director, the entire film involves water because the demon that ha- that taunts and terrifies is like a cross between predator and swamp thing. I like the press release for the Blu-ray release. It says the first two sentences, can a glass of water kill? When you see a puddle on the floor, do you fear you'll fall into it? So, well... That's that's a nice little tag. Well, here's what happened when Chad Archibald fell into... That puddle? A a big puddle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, we uh, we wrote the script, and, you know, in our heads, it was... It was uh, something that was going to be kind of really, really beautiful and fun just to kind of, you know, film these elements. And, of course, you know, we had ideas of how to make them all work. And, of course, as soon as you get on set, they all fail and you have to resort to, you know, instant, uh, I guess, emergency procedures trying to figure out uh, what we're, uh, we're going to do to make this all happen. So a lot of the gags in the actual movie are even, they're not even the ones that were in the script. Um, we kind of went out on a shoestring budget to make this, which, of course, you know, is the, the worst idea to do a water film. But we went out, and uh, the whole the whole Drownsman set was built in a, a field, like an apple orchard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was all outside. Um, so, so I mean, whenever you see, uh, oh, sorry, whenever you see them come out of the tub, there's uh, there's basically like a tank that we had built underneath the tub, so that they could really burst up, burst out instead of just kind of setting up as well like the idea of the things that you don't really think about is that 
there was no plumbing or anything in this in this in the set. So we would have to go and um, fill up garbage pails, <laughs> big garbage pails full of water, and we would have to heat them all night with bucket heaters. And oh, now wait. I'd have to wake up every hour and reset all the bucket heaters and change them all. And then we would get to a point where we're like, okay, the set's ready. We think this is going to work. We don't think there's any leaks. <laughs> Let's see. We'd get our water brigade. We'd get everyone on the crew. Sometimes even the cast would jump in and like grab buckets and we'd like drag them through at this point. It was actually winter. And uh, get them into the set, fill it. Of course, you know, it would start leaking and we'd start going, okay, fill, fill, fill. <laughs> buckets of water in and as we were outside you could see that the whole set looked like it had sprung a leak and it was slowly turned like outside of the set into a pool and it was a uh, challenge after challenge every single day i mean every day at lunch everyone would go eat and i'd, I'd go sit down with our production designer since and uh we'd just stare at something we'd stare at a bucket of weird like you know whatever it's going to be that day whether it's like a, a wash basin or something we'd be like so how can we make a guy's hand pop out of this because you know all the plans that we had done they all just failed as we test morning and uh yeah then we'd have to kind of you know come up with new ideas and stuff so i mean it was it was definitely by far the most challenging film i've ever done and i produced almost 20 now so it's uh it was monumental for us for sure and my, when you see it on film, it actually, it is a quite well done, Harm. Mm. Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it, yeah. It's definitely worth a look-see. It is on DVD and Blu-ray. So, and it's a, it's a new entry in the horror genre. Now, we have time for, I'm going to try and get in this one more clip, which will be, it will be Brian, Sam Elliott number two, okay? New movie coming out, I'll See You in My Dreams written and directed by Brett Haley. It has a veteran cast. You don't find roles for people like Blythe Danner, Sam Elliott, June Squibb, Mary Kay Place, Rhea Perlman, all in the same film. Here, They are all in this film. Uh, we'll hear more next week, but in light of all these new directors and new talent that we've just heard from, you know, Sam is a 40-plus, 50-year veteran in the industry, started back in the 60s as a contract player, at Fox at the tail end of the studio system. So I had to ask him, what has he, he seen change and happen from the way the work process was 40 years ago to how it is now? And here's what he had to say. It really just speaks to how viable the independent film game is, I think. I mean, movie studios aren't going to, really, 18 days? It's a one-hour show. Maybe they're going to shoot in 18 days, right, an episode of something. Be cynical about it, but, you know, you get the point. It's, I just think it speaks volumes about the independent film world and the ability to make really good films with not a lot of money if you have people that care about making films. It doesn't cost a lot to make films these days, not with digital, not in this digital world. That's You talk about seeing transformations. I think that's like one of the biggest ones that I've have recognized over the last few years. I've worked on a couple of films that were digital, and it's like, wow. And it's, it's almost like it takes getting used to. I started doing this thing on Justified. I did Justified this year, and, they, you know, it's... Uh, if you don't like what you're doing or they don't like what 
you're doing. The director says, start over again. And you just, you know, I'm used to cut. Okay. You know, checking the film, see how much film's in the camera. And all that stuff's out the window. Because that energy just transfers into the work, I think. There's no standing around waiting. And that is all the time we have today. Of course, we're running late again. We will see you next week on Behind the Lens. See you next week.